Thank you, Kev. All I can say is, Becky, you must be so relieved. I've got no PowerPoints, no DVDs. Normally, Becky sees me and she goes, oh, no, this is just awful. So just for you, Becky, nothing. How good is that? So I've been given the task this morning of speaking about baptism. So I don't want to make any assumptions. So I want to start with a straw poll, okay? So these are going to be your options. I want to know who was christened slash baptized as a baby? Who was baptized as an adult? Who was baptized as a child and again as an adult? Who was dedicated as a baby? And maybe some people have had none of that combination whatsoever and haven't been baptized or christened. Are you ready for the straw poll then? Now you know what the questions are because I thought I'd better give you a bit of heads up in case you get confused. So hands up if you were christened stroke baptized as a baby. Yeah, that's a good amount of us. Okay. Hands up if you were baptized as an adult. Oh, that's a good number. Hands down again. Hands up if your baptism as an adult, this is a supplementary question, was by total immersion, as in, you know, like we do here, up and down. Hands up if your baptism as an adult was kind of like a, maybe a cross on the forehead. Anybody? Yeah, a couple of those. Hands up if you were baptised as a baby and baptised again as an adult. Oh, yes, there's quite a lot of us heretics. Hands up who was dedicated as a baby. Dedicated as a baby. That's interesting. Not that many, actually. Interesting. Thank you. Um, hands up who was never been baptised, christened, dedicated, or anything whatsoever. Just one heathen. Which is a nice one. Yeah. You can, you can be baptised as an adult. You'll be there still time. Final question. Anybody here who was maybe confirmed? That would probably be either Anglican, Catholic, maybe Methodist. Maybe you've been confirmed as well. Okay. So we've got quite a good cross-section, which is what I was expecting. And that's reflective, really, of the different um, way that baptism is interpreted of in different churches and different expressions of different faith from different churches. So what I'm going to do this morning is a whistle-stop tour of sacraments, of baptism, what it practically involves, and the implications for our lives. And then at the end, we're going to renew our baptismal vows together. Now then, I'm going to give you a broad theology ranging from the Jesuits to Assemblies of God, to C of E, to Roman Catholic, to Mike Breen, to Alan Hirsch, to Mary Banks in the Bible. So there should be something there that everybody will understand. Hopefully you'll all understand all of it, and there'll be some from the tradition from which you've come from. So maybe it would be simple then if we unpack the beliefs that baptism is a sacrament, which all Christians hold to, irrespective of what branch of theology you come from. So the next question then, what's a sacrament? We said that baptism's one of them, and how many sacraments are there? Oh, see, I can, it's going to be a bit of a test this morning. So, what's a sacrament? Sacraments are outward signs of inward and spiritual grace that are given by Christ as a sure and certain means by which we receive that grace. So, dead easy. 
What's grace? We know that one. Grace is God's favor towards us. It's unearned. It's undeserved. And by God's grace, he forgives our sins. He enlightens our minds. He stirs our hearts. And he strengthens our wills. So just like there's a load of different beliefs about baptism, there's also a broad selection of views. You will be pleased to know on the number and type of sacraments. Now we're going to find out how many sacraments are there. Okay, I'll give you a couple of choices. You can go for two, you can go for three, you can go for seven, or you can go, I ain't got a clue. Okay, are you ready? Who thinks there are two sacraments? Hands up. A couple of people. Okay. Who thinks there are seven? Quite a lot more people. Oh, I said three. Who thinks there are three? Quite a lot more people. Anyway, got a clue. Oh. Well, that's, that's, that's honest. Very interesting that the majority of people think there are seven. That's very interesting. You'll find out why in a moment. Next question. Assuming there were seven, what are they? Okay, shout out at me any of the sacraments you can name. Go. Sacrament of bread. Yes. Someone goes to a church school, I would suggest. Well done. Do you go to a church school by any chance? Do you go to a church school, an Anglican or Catholic school? Thought you might. Because you wouldn't get many kids say that. Well done. Yes, that is correct. Sacrament of reconciliation, number one. Kev, you said one. Eucharist. Yeah, that's two. Come on, come on. What am I preaching on? Baptism, that's three. Keep going. Marriage, yes. Confirmation, yes. We're up to five. One you'll get. Any more for any more? Come on, you who said seven. Go on, Jack. Dedication, no, sorry. Could have been. Okay, I'll give you a couple more. Holy Communion, yes, we've had Eucharist. Okay, these are the ones that we, well, one we should be familiar with, anointing of the sick is actually a sacrament when the sacrament unites the six persons suffering with that of Jesus. You pray for people with the oil and the laying on of hands, and that's a sacrament. Final one, two more. Penance. Ooh, getting more theologically interesting. Through penance we receive God's forgiveness, but forgiveness requires being sorry for our sins. The signs of this sacrament are our confession of our sin and knowing that they are forgiven. In some traditions that would be obviously the role of a priest. And the final one, we've we've had loads by now, of well past seven, would be ordination or ministry. So that's, can you name them, how many there might be? So we've we've got quite a good spectrum here. So, Reformed theologians, most evangelicals, and Assemblies of God say there are how many? Two. But you're not wrong if you said seven either. So, going back to the Assemblies of God statement of fundamental truths, which I read often, not... Um, They were written in 1916, and they say in Article 6, there are two ordinances or sacraments. Believer's baptism by immersion, 
is a declaration to the world that the believer has died and been raised together with Christ, becoming a new creation. And the Lord's Supper is a symbol expressing the believer's sharing in the divine nature of Christ, a memorial of Christ's suffering and death, and a prophecy of Christ's second coming. So there you go. If you were Anglican, they have the 39 articles as the bedrock of their tradition, and they have two key sacraments, which is communion and baptism, the same as us, but their definitions are also broader, and they allow for the others that we mentioned, confirmation, penance, ordination, matrimony, anointing of the sick, are also seen as sacraments. The Jesuits would have seven, and I love this quote from it, it says this, Jesus touches our lives through the sacraments. Our celebrations of the sacraments are signs of Jesus' presence in our lives and a means for receiving his grace. So we've had a quick whiz through the theology of sacraments and baptism, and the good news is, whatever church background you are from, everybody agrees that baptism is a sacrament. That's a bit of a relief, isn't it? That makes my job a little bit easier. Everybody agrees. How it's done, people will disagree. But all Christians would say that baptism is a sacrament. It's a sign, an outward, visible sign of an inner grace that Jesus freely gives us. And our beliefs and our theology, and very, very interesting straw poll on how many people thought what, actually, that to a large extent depends on the tradition you were brought up in and what you've been exposed to later in life. What I would say is this, be free. Think outside the box. Explore lots of traditions and you'll find a rich tapestry and lots of different expressions and pathways. So don't just be contained within one tradition that you were maybe brought up with or exposed to, but think. Think outside the box. Explore. There's a huge wealth of Christian theology and faith and expressions. Explore all of them because then you'll find a really rich and diverse pathway to God. Baptism then. Baptism was God's idea. It was divinely instituted and it's a way in which Jesus touches our lives. And our celebration of baptism is a sign of his presence in our lives. And it's a way in which we connect with him in a special way. It's biblical. We know that Jesus was baptized by John. So I'm going to have a very quick, you'll be pleased to know, Kevin and Joe, Pentecostal whiz through baptism. Will that, will that keep you happy? I don't want to be sacked before the end of the service. Okay. What is baptism? It represents the identification of the Christian with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's why quite a lot of churches will hold baptismal services on Easter Sunday. It's fairly logical, isn't it? You're crucified, standing upright in the water. You are buried, immersed in the water. And you are resurrected to life when you're raised out of the water. So water baptism is a picture of baptism defined in Romans and Corinthians. Baptism pictures and proclaims the believer's death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. You'll know the verse, he's buried with him in baptism. You also are risen with him through faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. That's from Colossians. You'll be familiar with those verses. Baptism also pictures and proclaims the death of our old life to sin. 
and our resurrection to walk in newness of life. As Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4. Baptism also pictures and proclaims our faith in the Trinity. That's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And finally, baptism pictures and proclaims the fact that we put on Christ. For you all are children of God by faith in Christ. As many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, Galatians 3, 6. So there's loads of things going on in baptism that I guess we'd mostly be aware of. So the next question then, who should be baptized? In the Pentecostal tradition, baptism is for believers. In Acts 12, we find that when they believed, then they were baptized. When the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. He wasn't told to be baptized. His baptism came after his believing. So who should be baptized? Anybody who believes in and follows Jesus. So water baptism then is not salvation. You don't have to be baptized to be saved and go to heaven. Not in our tradition. But baptism is obedience to a command of God to be baptized. And I think it's all about discipleship. So when and where? Baptism follows shortly after new birth. When you become a Christian. In, our in, in reality, some people are baptized years and years and years after they've been Christians. Some people are baptized very quickly. And some people, for whatever reason, never get baptized at all. I was baptized four years after I became a Christian. I became a Christian at 13 and my parents said I was too young to get baptized because I'd been baptized as a baby. And I wanted to then be Pentecostal and go for the full Monty in a lovely white gown in my days. Oh, it was delightful. Hands up who was baptized in a white gown. Oh, it's, it's, it was a vision, wasn't it? A white gown. Hands up who was fortunate enough to be baptized past the days of a white gown where you just got to wear jeans and things. You're so blessed. That's all I can say. And where? Where should people be baptized? Well, the answer is pretty much anywhere there's enough water. In a church baptismal tank, in a swimming pool, in a river, in the sea, but not on your own, because it's a declaration of faith, isn't it? It's usually among Christians. You know, there's nothing special about the water. Importing water from the River Jordan, like the royal family, makes no difference. I also think it would be quite impractical to fill a baptismal tank with water from the River Jordan. It's all right if you're having a bit sprinkled on, but not if you're going for full immersion. So water from the River Jordan, sorry, royal family, doesn't make any difference at all. We've had some fantastic baptismal services at Junction 10. And, you know, it builds faith in those who are being baptized. It is definitely, if you've never been baptized, a spiritual moment not to be missed. If you've been baptized, it is such a time of faith, of sense in the presence of God, it really is a sacrament. It's a time which is an outward testimony of something that's going on in here. A time when you really appreciate God's grace. 
It's confessing publicly your faith. It's identifying with Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. To your family and to your friends who come along to watch. It's following the example of Jesus and it encourages the rest of the church because we hear stories because you get to testify. You can write a little bit. You can write a bit more. You can say it yourself. You can ask someone else to read it for you. But you have to declare Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of my life. I don't believe that I say you have to be baptized to go to heaven. It's the outward symbol of what's already happened here in your heart. If you haven't been baptized, my question is, why not? Because you're missing out. And we're going to be having a baptismal service on the 12th of June. You would be correct in thinking there isn't a baptismal tank hidden under those steps. There isn't. So we're going to go to the gold mine center. And we're going to have, we've never had one before, a portable tank, I assume. So 12th of June at the gold mine center. If you haven't been baptized, think about it. And ask yourself why you haven't. There aren't any excuses other than medical and we can normally get round those as well. Because do you know what? Whilst we're a church that totally believes in baptism by full immersion, if for a medical reason you can't, do you know what? We'll throw water at you instead. We'll do it any old how. I'd love to throw a bucket over someone. In fact, have you been baptised, Mons? Oh, that's disappointing. I was hoping to throw a bucket of water over you. But when you're baptised, you make promises, don't you? And you declare your faith. You promise very simply to reject sin, believe in and follow Jesus. And we're going to come back to this when I've finished talking because I'm going to give us the opportunity to all renew our baptismal promises together. But, you know, baptism is an indicator of discipleship. Why? Because you declare that Jesus is Lord. And I want to spend a few moments unpacking what that means. Because the confession, Jesus is Lord, is the absolutely central, defining DNA of a Christian. Because it shapes and informs everything else that we do. It's dead simple, we can all get it, but it's also incredibly theologically deep and complex. But it's a saying that changes the world. So Jesus is Lord. That's what we declare at baptism. And when you emphasize Lord, that means Jesus is king, he's ruler, he's sovereign over every aspect of our lives. So we approach God, we put aside other idols, and we surrender to Jesus, who is our king, and we obey his will and command. There's a whole load, isn't there, of Bible in this little concept, Jesus is Lord. And then you say Jesus is Lord, with the emphasis on the Jesus, who's the Lord. Then the name, and what that stands for, qualifies, shapes, and conditions how we understand lordship. The fact it is Jesus who is Lord and not Caesar or some other person changes everything. We've got loads of information about Jesus in the Gospels, enough for us to be able to see an accurate picture of who God is and what he requires of us. 
Jesus himself says as much. He says that if we have seen him, we've seen the Father, because he and the Father are one. He only does what he sees his Father doing. That's John 10 and 14. In other words, we've only got to look at the remarkable person of Jesus to know what Father God is like. Because we understand God primarily through the mediating lens of Jesus, through his direct teachings and his work on our behalf. In other words, Jesus defines us and he forces us to identify ourselves in relation to him. So if we say Jesus is Lord, with the emphasis on the is, theologians such as Mike Breen and Alan Hirsch, who've looked into the interwoven theology of the Bible, saying underlying all scripture, there are two overarching themes. We've preached on them here. They're covenant and kingdom. Because we can say just about everything in the Bible fits into covenant or kingdom. And the confession that Jesus is Lord covers both. God binds himself to us in a covenantal relationship through the saving work of his son, who is also our master and lord of kingdom. Jesus is both saviour, covenant, and lord, kingdom. Like I said, a whole world view encapsulated in three words. Now I'm getting a bit more excited. As individuals, through baptism, and as a church, we need to declare our identity. And Gemma spoke about this this morning, didn't she? Because our identity is what inspires, underpins, and activates us. When we talk about, talk about declaring our identity, it means bringing the church and us into a place where we declare who we are in relation to the fact that Jesus is Lord. So the declaration, Jesus is Lord. But what does it look like in practice? Because it's all very well saying, yep, it's simple, and I can go for the Jesus is Lord. I can understand that. I can unpack it a bit more and think about it. Great, I understand the concept, but what does it mean? What does it mean when it's actually rooted in our everyday lives? What does it look like in practice? You know, we need practical tools and walkable pathways. We don't just need to think about it. We need to be competent in doing it, don't we? We need to live Jesus is Lord, not just say it. What does it look like when we say Jesus is Lord? Because it's an absolutely fundamental DNA Christian element. But what does it actually mean? What does it look like? It involves, as I said, declaring our identity. It's making sure that each of us know and experience God, that we have a shared vocabulary and understanding of our unique disciple-making mission and vision. It's about a community, about a church that knows the critical minimum standards of what, why, and how every part of the church champions, protects, and advances the reality of Jesus is Lord. If that sounds like a load of theology to you, it's just saying we all need to know Jesus is Lord. What does it mean for you, Rob Reed? What does it mean for you, Barbara Carlos? What does it mean for you, Keanu Chang? What does it mean? We can talk about it. We can think about the concept. What does it really mean? Do you know 
what it means for your life? What does it mean to protect that? What does it mean to do something about it? Do you know? Do you understand? And do you put it into practice? Jesus' Lord isn't a mantra or a slogan to be trotted out, but it's something to be worked out in the daily reality of our lives. Baptism is also called credo baptism, which is from the Latin, I believe. Credo, I believe, is a statement of faith. It's a declaration of identity. And we need to revisit and redeclare our identity. I'm going to give you an example. Has anybody heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? I'm expecting a few might have. Yes, we have a few theologians here. Well, he was born in 1906, and he died in 1945. He was a German Lutheran pastor. He was a theologian. He was anti-Nazi, and he was a founding member of the Confessing Church. That is the church that stood up against the German regime. He was a great theologian, but apart from that, he became, as he, he became known for his resistance to the Nazi dictatorship. He strongly opposed... Hitler's euthanasia and persecution of the Jews. He was involved in plans by members of the German military intelligence to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And he was arrested by the Gestapo and hung 23 days before the war ended. So why am I mentioning him this morning? So whilst he was a phenomenal theologian, he also was a dedicated man of faith who put his money where his mouth was, in black country parlance. He resolved that he was going to carry out the teaching of Christ as he found it in the Gospels, and he wasn't going to back down. He was ordained at the age of 25. And I mention him here because one of his key principles was called the principle of concretion, which does sound a bit tricky, but actually it's dead simple, and it's this. We only know and find out in an actual, concrete, real situation what we will actually respond. So until something actually happens, we can think about, yep, I know what, what I'll do, declaring Jesus is Lord in that situation. But it's not until you're actually in a given, live, real situation that you actually find out what you're really going to do. Does that kind of make sense? So if you have a diagnosis of cancer, I can stand here because I haven't and I can say, yep, I'm pretty sure I would pray, I would declare Jesus is Lord, and I would be okay. But, you know, until I actually get to that situation, I don't know how I'd respond, do I? I might fall to bits. I don't think I would, but I might. And it's not until you're in a concrete situation that you actually find out, does your faith actually go into practice? If you win the lottery, well, none of you would have entered it to start with, but supposing that a few of you had done, what would you actually do if you got 10 million quid? Well, you might think, well, I'd, you know, I'd give 50% to, to Rose Till's retirement fund. No, you probably wouldn't think that. You might. You'd be all right there, Rose, getting making the tickets. You might think, you know, oh, well, I'd, I'd pay off me, but let's be honest, I'd pay off my mortgage, I'd see my kids were all right, I'd buy a new car, I'd have a holiday, and I might give the rest away to charity, the poor. That kind of sounds like what probably most people might sort of think of if you're that way inclined. But if you actually won it, what you did in reality might be totally and utterly different. If you think you might lose your job, 
you can hypothesize what you think you're going to do. If you were a steel worker in Port Talbot, you'd be thinking, what am I going to do? And they've been thinking that for a long time. But when it actually comes to it, it's a very different thing, isn't it? And what Dietrich Bonhoeffer saying is, which is the principle of concretion, is when actually in any given situation, it's only then that you find out what you're going to do. And what he was saying is, we need to learn to apply the commands of the gospel in our everyday lives and in our everyday situations. I wouldn't imagine when he was ordained at the age of 25 that he would have thought that he would be involved in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. That's not something you wake up with one morning and think, I'm going to do that, is it? And that partly is where his theology came from. It was about, you know, you need to speak out the right thing at the right time. You need to make the gospel real in every situation which you face in life. It's no good stepping back and not applying the gospel. So what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said was, you need to speak out in concrete words the right thing at the right time so that God's saving grace is made real in every current context so that we become personal witnesses to Christ in every situation. In every different context, in every relationship, and in every experience of life, we have to discern again the place of discipleship and responsibility. In every situation, we need a new encounter with God. And we need to learn to discern his presence and speak his word into the situation. And that was the theology that Dietrich Bonhoeffer took into the confessing church that stood up against the Nazis and against the Jews because he said we must declare the truths of the word of God in every situation that we find ourselves. And it cost him his life. And as we declare our identity, as we declare that Jesus is Lord, as we listen to his word, we speak it out into the context in which we live and the gospel becomes real in our lives and in the lives of those around us. So what's our response to the challenges in the 21st century that we face? To human trafficking, to exploitation, to refugees, to social justice. Declaring Jesus is Lord has implications in every area of our lives because it determines the way we invest our time, our money, and our energy. With Jesus at the center, so we have an integrated, full, and impactful life. We declare that Jesus is Lord over our priorities, over how we view them and how we live them out. And one practical tool for doing this is by looking at the capital that we have in our lives. Where do we have time, resources, insights, experiences, relationships to invest, to truly and intentionally go after what we desire with our life with Jesus as Lord? This, this concept is called the five capitals. I've preached on it before. I'm not going to do it again this morning, but it's just to think about. We've got five things to invest in our lives. We've got spiritual capital, the depth of our relationship with God as a disciple. How much spiritual wisdom and power can you invest in other people? What's God saying to you? 
What are you doing about it? We've got relational capital. The quality and quantity of our relationships with friends and with family and with husbands and with wives. Is Jesus Lord of this? Are we faithful in our marriages and in our friendships or do we break and spoil relationships? Physically, how do we invest our time and energy? Do we take time to be quiet and rest with God? Intellectually, our creativity, our ideas, our knowledge, how do we apply all that to Jesus' is Lord? Financially, how much treasure do we have? Pounds and pence, but what do we do with it? Do we invest it in ourselves, in others, in the kingdom? Jesus is Lord. Spiritual, relational, physical, intellectual, financial, how do we, in every part of our lives, practically say, Jesus is Lord? Baptism, in conclusion, is just that declaration. Could I have the worship team come back, please? Baptism is a declaration that Jesus is Lord. It's easy to say. It's three little words. But it challenges, when we put it into practice, every single part of our lives. Do we put Jesus is Lord into practice in the context of our everyday lives, whatever it is we do, day in, day out. In many churches, and ours included, when you are baptised, you have to declare, don't you? Do you declare that you put aside sin? Do you take and clothe yourself with Christ and you say, yes, I do? And what I'm going to do now is, I'm going to give us all an opportunity to actually renew and rethink about the promises that are made at baptism. Many churches do this every Easter, so we are a week late, but a week late's better than not at all. I'm going to ask a series of questions, and the, the word that I put the emphasis on is the one you responded to. So I'll give you an example. The first thing I'm going to say is, do you reject the devil and rebellion against God? And you guys say, I reject them. Then I'm going to say, do you renounce the deceit and corruption of evil, and you say, I renounce them, and so on. Do you understand where we're going? We're going to do that because it's, I think it's important that as we, we pass through this Easter season, that we just pause for a moment and say, okay, is Jesus still Lord? And then we're going to finish by singing the creed, which is, I believe, I believe, and it's staking, our stake in the ground, isn't it? Yep. This is what I believe. Jesus is Lord. I believe it. I declare it. And I'm going to do something about it. So that's where we're headed. So guys, if you want to stand with me, I'm going to pray. And if you can just respond as I go along to the six statements, and then we're going to go, and then we're going to sing the creed. Okay. I'm just going to pray to start with. Father, I pray that as we just think this morning about what it means that Jesus is Lord of our lives, that, Father, you will just challenge us again, that you will pinpoint those areas in our lives where perhaps we've put ourselves or others first, because I know I have, Lord, and I know we all have. So we just come again, and we just state our intention that we do declare that Jesus is Lord. You are Lord over everything, over every aspect of our lives, over our relationships, over our intellect, over our finances, over our time and our health. 
And we just place them all down again, Jesus. And we declare that you are Lord. So let's just take the baptismal promises together. Church, <clears throat> do you reject the devil and all rebellion against God? Yeah, I reject them. Do you renounce the deceit and co corruption of evil? Yeah, I renounce them. Do you repent of the sins that separate us from God and neighbor? Yes, I repent of them. Do you turn to Christ as Savior? Yes, I turn to Christ. Do you submit to Christ as Lord? Yes, I submit to Christ. Do you come to Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life? Yes, I come to Christ. And may God, who has given you the desire to follow Christ, give you the strength to continue in the way. Let's sing together.